Tonight we continue our look at the seven letters of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia Minor, and we come to one of only two out of the seven for whom Jesus has no critique, no criticism, but only commendation and encouragement. So a church that we want to learn from, the church at Smyrna. And so in Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, Jesus writes to them, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The first and the last, who is dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, we thank you for this church in Smyrna and their faithfulness to you. God, they suffered in ways that for the most part we can't imagine. So tonight, Lord, as we consider their story and try to apply it to ours, help us. We're not in the place that they're in, but we may be. And we may have some other things to learn from them and from your son as well. So teach us, help us to hear from your voice. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This was a church that suffered greatly, as I just said in my prayer. And to give you an idea of what Jesus meant when he spoke to them about tribulation there in verse 9 and when he spoke to them about what they were about to suffer in verse 10. I want to tell you a story from Smyrna that comes from about a generation later uh, about a, a pastor named Polycarp. Polycarp was an old man. He, uh, Most historians think he was uh, old enough that he learned from the apostle John himself when Polycarp was very young. And as an old man, he was the pastor of the church at Smyrna. And when he was 86 years old, he became a wanted man because um, he was preaching the gospel in the church and people's lives were being changed and that wasn't making people in the city of Smyrna very happy. And so they began to aim for this man, Polycarp. If we can strike the shepherd or the under-shepherd, then the sheep will scatter, so they thought. And so they began to pursue him, and he had to go and leave the city and and move right outside of the city and stay with one friend at a farm. And then eventually, as they found him there, he had to move to another farm. And he was hiding out in the outskirts of Smyrna. And then finally, a servant, a household servant, in one of these farms where he was hiding, turned him in. And so his pursuers arrived there to take him for his trial and... He provided a meal for them and prayed um, before they all took him away. But eventually they took him away, brought him back into the city. And I want to read to you uh, a somewhat long paragraph about what happened when this man Polycarp, pastor in Smyrna, was brought back into this city that Jesus is writing to in Revelation 2. Now, 
as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, Be strong and show thyself a man, Polycarp. No one saw who it was that spoke to him, but those of our brethren who were present heard the voice. And as he was brought forward, the tumult became great when they heard that Polycarp was taken. And when he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to your old age and other similar things according to their custom, such as swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say, Away with the atheists. That's what they called the Christians, atheists, because they didn't believe in the gods that everybody else believed in. They were atheists. But Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium and waving his hand towards them while the groans, or while with groans he looked up to heaven said, Away with the atheist. Then the proconsul urging him and saying, Swear and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years have I served him and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king? And my Savior. And they went back and forth and they failed to convince him. And so eventually they burned him at the stake. And finding that he didn't burn very well, they eventually took him down and stabbed him to death. And he died. And I, I say that was a generation later than what we're dealing with here. But it was the same city. And it gives you an idea of the early persecution that the Christians faced in Asia Minor and in Smyrna specifically, and why Jesus wrote to this church as he did in verses 8 through 11. It was a suffering church, and Polycarp wasn't the first to suffer, obviously, as we saw. But I can't help wonder as I read that story about Polycarp and his uh, refusing to renounce Christ in the face of being burned alive, um, I can't help wonder if perhaps these words that we just read were running through his mind. He would have been in his 20s when this letter was written and sent to the city of Smyrna. And perhaps as he was tied there to the stake, he was reminding himself of verse 11. He, whoever comes, will not be hurt by the second death. I don't know that for sure, but that gives you some idea of what these people lived through. And as I said, Polycarp wasn't the only Smyrnite who suffered for Jesus' sake. We see in verse 10 that several of them were going to be thrown in prison and eventually be martyred for the faith. This was the city in which stood a gigantic temple to Caesar. It was a city that was known for its great loyalty to Rome and to the emperor. And so... Probably this phrase that we've mentioned already, Caesar is Lord, was commonplace in everyday life in Smyrna. Everyone was loyal to the emperor. Everyone was willing to call him Lord and to burn sacrifices to him like a god, except for a handful of Christians and a handful of Jews. The Jews, they left alone because they didn't really try to spread their message very far, but Polycarp and the Christians like him in earlier days were in a great deal of trouble with the government oftentimes. And verse 9 seems to indicate that there were some Jews in the city uh, who uh, maybe made life hard for the Christians as well. And so these people were dealing with persecution on a regular basis, something that we are not. And yet we need to learn from what Jesus says to, him, to them. 
And the main, the big overarching thing we can say, we're going to say three things, but the big overarching thing we can say about this letter is that it's a letter about suffering. It's a letter about suffering, and we can learn about suffering from it. And the first thing I want you to notice is the set of comforting words that Jesus writes at the beginning of verse 9. Do you see that? I know your tribulation. I know. Remember, Jesus is walking amongst the lampstands, amongst his churches, amongst his people. He's observing, he's watching, he's caring, he's helping. He says, I know what you're going through. And it reminded me of when Moses was in the wilderness at Sinai and God appeared to him in the burning bush. And God said a similar thing to him. I have seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I'm not blind, Moses. I see what's going on. I know about it, and I'm going to do something about it, God said there in Exodus. And that's what Jesus is saying here to these people. I've surely seen the affliction of my people. I know your tribulation. And I think the implication is I'm going to do something about it. And the lesson is is Jesus is not oblivious, is he? He's not disinterested when his people are suffering. He's not callous. He's not twiddling his thumbs, kind of waiting to see what the next thing is. Even when he does not respond right away or respond as quickly as we think he should, he knows our tribulations. And so that's the first thing that he says. I know your tribulation. We sing it sometimes, don't we? Jesus knows all about our troubles. He will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. So just think about it for yourself. You're not suffering like these people were, but what is it for you? Maybe it's pain or sickness. Maybe it's heartache. Maybe it's disappointment. Maybe it's guilt. Maybe it's temptation. Maybe it's fear. Whatever it is for you, Jesus says, I know your tribulation." He's just as much among the lampstands, among his churches, among his people today as he was in Smyrna. He's among the lampstands in Haiti tonight, among his people, knowing their trouble, and he is going to do something about it. Maybe not what we think he should do, maybe not what we would want him to do, but he knows, and he knows for you, and he's there for you. But in regard to the suffering of the people of Smyrna in particular, he says three things. And I want you to notice those still under this big main overarching theme of a letter about suffering. He speaks of three kinds of suffering. First, he says, I know your tribulation, tribulation. Now, that's a specific word that's often used in the Bible to refer to religious persecution, difficulty, not just in general, but difficulty because you're a Christian. And I think that's what he means here. Given what we know about Smyrna, given what he says in the rest of these verses, I think when he says, I know your tribulation, he's saying, I know that you're persecuted for my namesake. And we're going to come back in a moment and talk about that kind of persecution. But I do want to say just in passing that that phrase, I know your tribulation, as we've already been saying, can be applied to other kinds of trouble as well. If you can picture it, Surely Jesus was just as concerned about and just as much at the bedside of some godly old Smyrnite woman who may have been dying of cancer as he was with those martyrs in prison 
in verse 10. He cared about both. And so when he says, I know your tribulation, um, he cares about all of our troubles and he cares about all of your troubles. So persecution is extreme and unusual, yes. And there does seem in the scriptures to be special promises and peculiar grace that is offered to saints when they are being persecuted. But we can also say that there's the promise of peculiar help to saints who are suffering in every way, right? In more run-of-the-mill ways. And so remember that when you suffer trials of various kinds. But the main thing here is, is religious persecution. And here Jesus seems to be promising special attention and special care to his people who were persecuted for their faith. His grace will be unusually present in those times. And when we read the stories of martyrs and Christians who suffer it, we are amazed sometimes at how well they do. And we think, I could never do that. Well, they would say that too. But it's because Jesus' grace is amazingly present with those who are suffering for the faith. And it will be with you. Whether it's something minor like your family being irritated because of decisions you make, because you're a follower of Jesus and they don't like those decisions, Jesus will be with you in that. Or whether it's that your boss just doesn't get it, doesn't get why you think certain ways or do certain things or need to be certain places, Jesus will be with you in those situations. Not always to get you out of the situation, but to help you bear up in it. And of course, of course, He soothes His saints in peculiar ways when they're under those unusual and deeper persecutions as well. Just to give you one example of that, I brought in this Voice of the Martyrs magazine and I wanted to read to you about India, Orissa State, where there's a great deal of persecution and particularly about one woman there. By now the world knows the devastation wrought by anti-Christian violence that swept through India in 2008. 121 pastors and believers murdered, more than 5,000 houses destroyed, 235 places of worship burned and more than 70,000 people displaced. The attacks have not thwarted the efforts of bold believers who continue to share Christ despite violent opposition. Notable among these Indian Christians are the widows left behind and the Indian pastors who spread the gospel in Hindu-controlled enclaves while under legal attack. The death of Lydia de Gaulle's husband is, unfortunately, an all-too-familiar story. Lydia lived with her pastor husband, Akabar, and their five-year-old son, Oved, in a small house next to their church. Akabar founded the church about ten years ago, and though it was not the largest church in the village, about 80 families attended, and it was still growing. On August 26, 2008, a mob of about 4,000 Hindu radicals descended on the Digal's small village. That month, the Hindu extremists raged through village after village in Orissa looking for Christians in general and pastors in particular. At first, Akbar hid with his family in a turmeric field, but he later told Lydia to take their son and find a better hiding place. The next time Lydia saw her husband, he was lying naked, dead, with multiple stab wounds. A year later, Lydia was among 225 Orissa victims, many of them widows who gathered to share their grief receive aid from Voice of the Martyrs partners, and grow in their love for Christ. Lydia holds steadfastly to Matthew 5.10. She feels blessed even though she has lost her husband. After killing the pastor, 
They searched, but they didn't get me and my son, she said. And how does she feel about her husband's killers? I'm giving pardon to them, she said. One day let them come to Christ. That is my hope. Now, I would say Jesus is unusually, extraordinarily with this woman. And that's what he's promising in this passage. It's still good today. And he will be unusually, extraordinarily with you when you face trials of every kind, and specifically if and when you face trials for your faith. And just by way of an application while you're not facing trials for your faith, let me say that Jesus' knowledge of his churches, his suffering people, and his care for them ought to urge us to know about them and to care for them as well whether it's getting Voice of the Martyrs and reading about those who suffer for their faith, whether it's knowing about and caring for people in Haiti who are suffering for different reasons and in different ways. I think Jesus' example of knowing and caring for his people is an example for us to follow. So he says, I know your tribulation. Secondly, he says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. Still under this big heading of suffering, Tribulation, suffering for the gospel, now poverty, suffering financially. Apparently, some of the Christians in Smyrna, maybe most of the Christians in Smyrna, were very poor people. And one reason may have been connected to the persecution. Sometimes persecution comes in the form of Christians being denied jobs or fired from their jobs when they convert to Christianity. Sometimes it means that if you're a Christian and you own a business, people won't shop at your business anymore. Sometimes it means you're a widow and your husband is killed and you have no way to support yourself and you're poverty stricken. Sometimes it's because your home is burned. Sometimes it's because as a young person you're kicked out of your home and you have nowhere to go. Sometimes it's because as a woman, now that you've become a Christian, your parents won't help you find a spouse and you're not going to marry an unbeliever and so you're stuck with no way to support yourself. All those different things happen to suffering Christians. And maybe that's why the Smyrnites were so poor. But it's also just possible that they were poor for other reasons. The city in general was not a poor city, but it could be that the gospel, like it often does, made inroads first among the poor people. Remember Paul said to the Corinthians, there were not many among you who are wise or noble, important. And maybe that was the case in Smyrna. Maybe that's why they were poor. But whatever the reason was, these Christians were struggling financially. And Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. I know that you're struggling financially. And I haven't forgotten you. I sympathize with you. I will take care of you. And he'll take care of you too, won't he? You can remember that when you have these question marks in your mind. I'm there. I'm with you. I'm among the lampstands. I'll take care of you. And he says, I know you're poverty, but you're actually rich. You're actually rich. I have made you rich, not physically rich. I've made you spiritually rich, Jesus is saying. Your neighbors may have gained the whole world, but they've lost their souls. And what does that profit a man? But Jesus is saying to these people, you, on the other hand, you've lost your treasure in this world, or maybe you never had any, but you've gained your souls. And therefore, you're rich. And there's a good word here for us in a roundabout way. This is a reminder of what 
true poverty and true riches actually consist of. We could kind of skip over this part and think it didn't apply to us because Jesus probably is not going to say to us as a group or to any of us as individuals, I know your poverty. I mean, we we may struggle sometimes, but I don't think Jesus is probably using the word poverty for most of us. And so we may skip over this. But actually, there's a lesson here. We see what true poverty is, and most of us really aren't there. But then we see what true riches is. Two, don't we? And some of us are there and some of us aren't there. And so the question to ask is, maybe I'm not poor temporally, but could Jesus say, I know you're rich spiritually? In other words, is Christ your treasure? Have you gained your soul? And that's a simple question. Are you a Christian? Do you really know God. That's what Jesus says about these people. It's simple. You're poor, but you're to demonstrate that you care more about your soul than you do about gaining the whole world. Are you truly rich and are you living like it? I know your poverty. Thirdly, he says, I know that you mourn theologically. You mourn theologically. Verse 9, the end of the verse. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. In other words, there were a group of people in Smyrna who called themselves the people of God, but they actually live like devils. That's what he's saying, right? They say they're Jews, they say they're the people of God, but they're actually a synagogue of Satan. They actually live like the devil. Now perhaps, again, these people were a part of the persecution that the Smyrnites were facing. But the emphasis here isn't on the Smyrnites suffering physically. It's on blasphemy. He says, I know that you're dealing in your city with blasphemy. In other words, not only do I know that you're sorrowing personally because you're suffering and you're poor, but I know that you also are sorrowing because my name is being dragged through the mud in your city. Those are two kinds of suffering, aren't they? Now, we don't face these first two very much in our culture. We don't face the suffering of tribulation because of our faith very often, and most of us don't face the suffering of poverty. But I hope we can identify with this third thing. I hope that we sorrow because... In our world, just like in theirs, God's name is sullied. What was happening in Smyrna is that these people that called themselves the people of God and probably did a lot of outward things that made them look like the people of God actually weren't. And that was a source of consternation and concern and mourning for the people in the church. And I feel their pain. Because sometimes I look around in a sort of a self-pitying mood and say, we're trying to do the right things. No, we're not perfect. Yes, we have our problems. Yes, I struggle sometimes to do what I'm supposed to do. But as a whole, we're trying to preach the gospel. We're trying to do the right things. And we have 80 people. And there's all kinds of other people in this city that are preaching who knows what. And they have 800 people. I don't get it, God. And so I feel what the Smyrnites perhaps felt. Why is it, God, that you allow these people to stay in our city and pretend like they're your people and live like they do, and here we are struggling and being persecuted? I don't get it. And we all ought to feel something of that, not in a self-pitying kind of way, but we all ought to look around and be concerned 
when we see the hucksters on TBN. We ought to look around and be concerned when we read in the paper today about a local pastor who's living a double life and portraying to the world a vision of what God's people are like that is totally not true. We ought to be concerned when we hear about church people who picket and hold up hate signs. God hates you and all these kinds of things that sometimes happen in the name of Christianity. We ought to be concerned about churches that, that claim the name of Christ but actually don't believe anything about Christ. Don't believe he really was born of a virgin. Don't believe he really rose from the dead. All these things. We ought to be concerned when we look around and see churches that are more interested in being cool than being Christ-centered. I'll give you an example of that that just blew my mind away today. A pastor of a, a well-known pastor of a large church in California uh, has gotten his church staff and I guess some folks in his church to devote uh, great amounts of their time and energy and web space to helping him win a contest to have a commercial for Doritos in the Super Bowl. In other words, we're going to take our effort on our website and in our church and we're going to get people to push for this and vote for me so that my commercial will be the commercial that they show in the Super Bowl. And on top of that, his commercial is staging his own funeral so that everybody thinks he's dead and they'll leave him alone and he can watch the Super Bowl by himself with his Doritos in his casket. Making light of death and making a mockery of what the church is supposed to be pouring her efforts into. Now, that kind of thing bothers me. And so sometimes I find myself like these Smyrnites saying, God, why do you let these people pass for Christians? Why do you let them get away with it? Don't you know it makes you look bad and it makes us look bad? It makes Christianity look bad? We're all lumped in together here? I don't understand, God. But here's what Jesus says about that. I know. I know what's going on. I know the blasphemy, he says, of those who call themselves Jews and are not, those who call themselves the people of God and are not, those who call themselves Christians and are not. I know all about that, Jesus says. And by implication, again, I'm going to take care of that too. I know about your tribulation, and I'll take care of that. I know about your poverty, and I'm going to take care of that. And I know about the people around you who blaspheme my name, and I'm going to take care of that as well. And the implication is then that we shouldn't get as frustrated as we sometimes do. We shouldn't feel sorry for ourselves. Jesus is basically urging the people here, keep doing what you're supposed to do. Don't lose heart. Don't lose sleep over this kinds of thing kinds of things I know all about your troubles and I'll take care of you and so in all those ways this is a letter about suffering different kinds of suffering some that we're familiar with some that we're not but it helps us to remember that Jesus is with us that he knows that he walks among the lampstands that he cares and that he is going to do something about all the things that we see that are wrong in our lives and in the world Secondly, more briefly, this is also a letter about death. Obviously, death is part of suffering, but just as a sort of a, a second um, point and, and to take it apart from the suffering part a little bit, it's a letter that teaches us about death, even if we don't die the way these people were dying. Now read verse 10. Do not fear 
what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, how would you like to get a letter like that from Jesus? You're going to suffer. You're going to be thrown into prison for ten days and you need to be faithful to death. In other words, you're going to die at the end of those ten days, either in the prison or when they bring you out into the theater where they brought Polycarp. How'd you like to get that letter? You probably won't get a letter just like that anytime soon. In other words, you're probably not going to get a letter again that says you're going to go to jail for your faith and you're going to die for your faith and you're going to be suffering for your faith. It may happen. It may happen down the road in our country, especially to some of you who are younger and are going to live longer. It may happen if you take the gospel to another land. But here in Cincinnati, it's probably not going to happen that you get a letter like this in the next week or so. But do you know what may happen? Sooner or later, you may get a letter similar to this, to this from Jesus through your doctor who says, you got ten days or you've got three months, or you've got five years, or whatever it may be. And the truth of the matter is, whether it's ten days, or ten years, or fifty years, all of us, if we open our Bibles, have already received a letter something like this. It's in Hebrews 9, 27. It's appointed for man to die once. And after this comes judgment. Jesus has already told us, each and every one of us, every person in this world, the same thing that he tells these people. He hasn't given us the details. He hasn't told us how many days it's going to be or how it's going to hurt or when it's going to happen or how it's going to happen, but it's going to happen. One day we are going to be in a similar place as these martyrs in verse 10. Maybe for some of us, again, as we take the gospel to the ends of the earth, maybe it will be in a prison cell. Maybe it will be in a hospital bed. Maybe it will be in an automobile. Maybe it will be in an earthquake. Maybe while you sleep in your bed. But someday the tribulation that sin has brought in and painted over this world is going to catch up with you. Someday it's going to end for you just like it did for these people in Smyrna in death. And your death may not be as dramatic as theirs or as Polycarp's, but it will be just as final and just as ugly and just as horrific. You ever watch somebody die, whatever the circumstances are, death is ugly. Death is horrible. It's meant to be that way. And we need, without being morbid, we need to do what Jesus is calling the people in Smyrna to do. We need to think about the fact that we're going to die. All of us sooner than we'd like, many of us sooner than we think. We need to think about that. We need to not push that out of our minds like our culture likes to do. We need to think about our own mortality. It's important. It's all through the Scriptures. That's one of the reasons why that pastor's commercial is such an abomination. He's making light of death. As a pastor, my job is to Make death heavy for you and real for you. And if you think about your death, there are two things Jesus says to remember if you're a Christian. 
two good things to remember. One, the beginning of verse 10, you don't need to fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Now that's easier to say than it is to do, isn't it? It's a lot easier to say than it is to do, I'm sure. But it's a real exhortation that's here. I don't understand it. There's no credibility behind me saying it, but Jesus says it. In Christ, there's no reason to fear death. We may be horrified at the process of dying and what that's going to be like. That may actually just floor us when we think about what it will be like to go through the process of dying. But we don't have to fear death itself. We're going to wake up in paradise and see the face of Jesus. And the words do not fear don't just apply to death, but they do actually apply to that process of dying that some of us are so afraid of. Some of us have in our mind, oh, I hope I don't die like this. God, please let me die in my sleep. Please let me die quickly. Please, I don't want to go through what she went through. I don't want this to happen. But Jesus told these people what was going to happen. And he still said, do not fear. Ten days in prison, not just in any prison, but in the devil's prison. He's going to put them there. Ten days in prison that are going to end in death. Don't fear, he says. For you it may be ten months of cancer. Don't fear. For you it may be tubes and needles coming in and out of every place in your body. And he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Whatever it is for you that you're going to suffer... Jesus is telling you in advance, don't be afraid of that. Why? Because I know. I know your tribulation. I'll be there with you. I'll be among the lampstands. Samuel Rutherford, whose letters I showed you a couple of sermons ago, said this to a woman who was suffering and I think dying. Be content to wade through all the waters betwixt you and glory with Jesus holding his hand fast, for he knows all the fords. In other words, don't be afraid to go through that river that's going to end in death because Jesus knows how to get you across. And whatever it is that you go through, Jesus knows how to get you across. Do not fear. And if you do not fear, then secondly, you can be faithful until death. At the end of the verse. Be faithful until death. Surely some of the Smyrnites were tempted to turn back. Wouldn't you be? You're facing ten days in prison that you knew were going to end in your death. Wouldn't you be tempted to turn back? To sacrifice to the emperor? To go ahead and stand in front of the crowds and say, yes, Caesar is Lord. Or wouldn't you be tempted if it were the Jews that were persecuting you just to go, I'll go back to the synagogue. I won't be a Christian anymore. I'll leave all this Jesus stuff alone. I would be. I'm sure some of them were. If they weren't going to be, Jesus wouldn't have had to tell them to be faithful to death and not to be afraid. There was every reason for them to be afraid. There was every reason, humanly speaking, for them to not be faithful, for them to turn back. And in Polycarp's day, some of the Christians did turn back. But Jesus says, don't do it. 
Tell yourself now that when you face whatever it is that you're going to face, whether it's tribulation because of your faith or just the tribulation that's in this world because of sin, tell yourself now, I'm not going to turn back. I'm not going to doubt God then. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to be faithful unto death. And it will be worth it because he who's faithful unto death will get the crown of life. Don't you doubt God in that most trying moment. Don't doubt Him then. And let me say to you as well, don't slack off in your old age. Be faithful until death. Don't retire spiritually. Polycarp was 86 when they burned him at the stake. He was 86 when he was causing all the trouble. 86 years old. No one here is that old. He's preaching the gospel all the way until the end. And we need to remain faithful in whatever God has called us to be and do all the way until the end. The promises for those who are faithful until death. So it's a letter about suffering, a letter that helps us face death, whatever that death may be for us. And finally, it's a letter about resurrection. It's a letter about resurrection. We saw a hint of it at the end of verse 10, didn't we? And then we see it again in verse 11 when Jesus says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You see, that doesn't say anything about resurrection there. Well, the key there is the phrase second death. Because over in Revelation 20, Jesus says the way you escape the second death is the resurrection. Those who take part in the resurrection cannot be hurt by the second death. The second death has no power over them is what he says. And so Jesus is teaching the people here to look forward to the day when they will bodily rise from the dead. When they will overcome second death. They're going to not overcome first death, but they will overcome second death. He's teaching them to look forward, not just to heaven, wonderful as that is, but to their final rescue, to the restoration of all things. The time when Jesus will come and He will right all the wrongs that confused us in this life. We all are going to face those things and we're all going to face the first death, he says, but if you take part in the resurrection, you will not be hurt by the second death. And if we want proof that that's a reality, that resurrection and overcoming the second death is a reality and not just pie in the sky, then we look back to verse 8 where Jesus called himself the first and the last who was dead and has come to life again. If you ever kind of wonder, is this really all real? I mean, sometimes, you know, I just come to church and I worship and it all seems real. And other times I have these doubts. Well, Jesus was as dead as dead can be, wasn't he? I mean, he was no more dead and no less dead than the martyrs in Smyrna. And he was no more dead and no less dead than you're going to be someday. No less dead than you. No less dead than I will be. And if he was just as dead as we're going to be, and he came to life, verse 8, why can't we? Of course we will if we're in Christ. It's not pie in the sky. It's real. The resurrection is 
real. And we need to learn as Christians to live in this great hope, the great hope that Christ will come. He will raise our bodies from the dead. He will give us victory over the second death. He will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we're looking forward to. We're looking forward to heaven, yes, but heaven won't even be the end. We're looking forward to something beyond that when we get our bodies again, when it will be clear that second death is finished and that death is completely gone out of the picture and we'll live forever in the new heavens and the new earth with Him. Jesus is coming to restore all things. That's what we're looking forward to. Now, we believe, yes, that God is going to work all things together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. But we don't always see that in this life, do we? And it doesn't always happen in this life. Yes, Jesus knows all about our troubles. Yes, He's going to do something about them. But a lot of what He's going to do isn't going to take place until He comes and we're raised. For example... I know your tribulation. I'm going to do something about it. But what about those martyrs in verse 10? He didn't do anything about their tribulation in this life. He didn't rescue them from it in this life, did he? They're waiting, according to Revelation 20. The martyrs are waiting until Jesus returns and they'll reign with him. Their reward is then. Or Jesus says, I know your poverty, and I want to do something about that. What about all those Christians who went into eternity in Haiti last night? As poor as poor can be. They were never in this life released from their poverty. But when Jesus returns, they will walk in rags no more. And what about the fact that Jesus says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they're my people and really aren't. And I'm going to do something about that. He doesn't always do something about that in this life, does he? But you better believe that when he returns, that's going to be a sore day for those who called themselves his people and were not. So, note this well. As believers, our great hope is the resurrection of the body. When Jesus will come, we will rise. He will grant us victory over the second death and we'll live forever with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Don't lose sight of the end. That's what this whole book is about. Living with the end in sight, as one of my professors wrote. Living with the end in sight. That's what keeps us going. What keeps us going the fact that he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. 